Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is a Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 115. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello and welcome to the very first show of this very new decade. Wow, what a little um, treat that is. And what a treat we have today in the show. Fantastic. <laughs> How is everyone anyways? I hope everyone had a fantastic Christmas. Honestly, we had, they're all gone now, thank God. We have our Christmas tree up and Christmas decorations up from, I'm guessing, honestly, I'm guessing round about the 12th or the 15th of November. And yeah, I must admit, it's you know, a curse on. You know, What's the point of that, man? It's no good. Man, just bloody guy. Fox is finished. But then when I'm actually sitting there, you know, and it's cosy and got all the decorations on, I'm loving it. So and we had a fantastic Christmas. If anyone's interested there, it was great stuff. We've had like some massive snow showers and been snowed in and trapped at work and all sorts like that. But... It's just been like a wonderful time and New Year was a lovely time and again I hope everyone's had a fantastic New Year and I hope he's a raring to go, raring to go with some science fiction and everything like that. But if you remember over, you know, the, 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 what's all that? I, don't know, the, the, I forget, it's been that long since I kind of did a show of the old lips are a bit sticky. So it's been in that month of December. We did the Lord Dickens declaration with Larry Wright and that. Well, in the show today, I have the final, because it's finished there now, the final figure what Starship Sova raised. And that's going to be in my introduction, but I'll give a little bit of explanation how it all happened and what how it went on, to be quite honest. We also have the very first one of Amy H. Sturgis, new show, or new, new show, article, still looking back in science fiction history, but the first one of this new decade. Main fiction comes from Paul DeFilippo with a cracking story called I City. 
After the main fiction, we have what everyone's been waiting for, the awards. That's the Sofa Nord Awards. Mark Bowman has put together, correlated, and the numbers are crunched. And the final, final ballot has been cast. He has the results. And we'll do a little interview, little interview, little get-together, and name the winners coming up later on as well. So that is... Oral Delights, showing about 115, like I say, the very first one of 2010. And 2010, you know, 2009 was all right. I'm just going visually looking at it, at the actual, the, the number, 2009. It looked to me always oldie-worldy. But 2010, for some reasons, clicking little receptors in the back of my brain saying, that looks, you know, when it's kind of star date log, it looks a little bit nearer to the walls of the future, if you know what I mean. I look at it and think, you know, we're getting there. We're getting near the future. And it's funny, I watched on, I've been downloading a lot of those TED talks, you know, the podcast, it's like the video podcast, TED, and there was a couple on there and it just makes you so excited, you know, these kind of inventors that are going on, I can't even remember his name, but he was like, the next generation of, say, like, there isn't going to be like a phone to kind of interact with, it's all going to be like, touch on your fingers and take a photograph with your fingers and it's so close to being there as well, you know what I mean, and I'm like, oh! Yeah. So anyway, we'll get into the editorial. And the editorial is all about like Lord Dickens' declaration. And hopefully, if you know, I mean, someone might have come along who's new there, but most of you just kind of know that it all started off from the cover of Starship Sofa's Volume 1, the stories, Skeet's cover. And Larry said he would like to write a story. I jumped on the back of that and asked Larry if we could run it as a kind of podcast. And through the month of December, Raise as much money for Spider and Jeannie Robinson. And Jeannie Robinson has got a hideous sort of cancer there. And, you know, things are looking up, but all money's vital, you know, over there in the Robinson Fund. And I just thought that would be a really nice thing if Starship Sofa's community could kind of get together and just, you know, help out in a little way. And this was a great way of, of doing it. And I asked at the very beginning of this kind of idea, would put one of those stories in that book, and it would sell that for £200, and straight away, that book sold, you know, and that was it, and I was thinking, hmm, how can I, you know, get a, a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more, and it was actually Robin Bradshaw, Robin, hello, hello, it was Robin who suggested, you know, she, no way could you kind of afford that one-off book payment, but, you know, if it was done in a digital download format, you know, and just for a little kind of price, a lot of people might donate, might help. So really, that idea, that seed was planted from Robin. And Robin, thank you so much for that, you know. So I kind of sorted that out, you know, and straight on the phone, on the phone to Josh. <laughs> Josh, will you set... You know, it's just, bless him, he gets these little short emails from me. And she's like, Josh, will you set this up? Will you sort that out? I want that. Do that. We're going to do this and do that. And yeah, yeah. And, and you know, yeah, to me, right. Okay, no problem. <laughs> He sets it all up and just about, you know, kind of go live. I says, Josh, why don't we just do it different prices as well? You know, fair enough, there's a bit 2 one there. And, you know, you got it for free with Larry's fantastic narrations. But let's have different price brackets in there, you know, right up to £100. So, you know, Josh, that's my impression of the computer. <laughs> See if I'm that fast. It's like this. Where's the ear? Where's the ear? B, B. <laughs> So I sent that over, you know, and Josh kind of set it up, and it went live. And 
that was it. And I was thinking, whoa, we're off here. And, you know, straight away, you just kind of start, you know, the, the £2.99s kind of rolled in. I had £50 donations. I even had, I think I've had four, let's say, I think four or five donations that were like £100. That was the limit we could go to. And it was going fantastic. You know, and I would get like a little e- email off Larry or a little Skype message. How's it going, Tony? How's it going? You know, because Larry's kind of, you know, it's his little baby, really, all this, you know what I mean, kind of Lord Dickens declaration, and he's, he's mothering her, you know what I mean, he's, kind of, he's precious to it, he's like, oh, how's it going, is, is anyone downloading it yet, Jordy? And I'll kind of say, oh, Larry, it's going really good, it's going really good, and it got to roundabout, I think it was something like the 27th or 26th of December, and we had about... 800, I think around about 800 pound in this kind of kitty. And I was like gobsmacked. And that 800 with the 200, that's like a thousand pound. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's good, really good. So I was quite happy with that. Do you know what I mean? I was thinking, this is fantastic. This is going great. You know what I mean? What a present that would be just to hand that over to kind of Spider Robinson. And, you know, thank you very much, Spider. There you go. I guess. An email off Matt Sanborn Smith, you know Matt, who is the fantastic fiction crawler who has got his own podcast now, The Hairy Mango. You know, Matt emailed us, you know, and, and just, you know, Tony, how are you doing? You know, looking, you know, nice new year. I've had an idea. Why don't we do like a little bit of a push on the last few days of this Lord Dickens declaration? See if we can, you know, raise a little bit more kind of funds. And I was like, oh, go on, Matt. And I, but everything was kind of swamped with me at that time. I was kind of battling, balling with other things. And I says, Matt, is there a chance you might be able to, like, do it? <laughs> Has how many people's heard that from me? You know, can you sort that out for us? That's a great idea. D, can you sort that out for us? So Matt said, well, he's, he's got a few days and, and he's back to work or something like that. And then he would write up this kind of little article and, you know, mention it on Twitter and stuff like that. And in the way we'd go, hopefully we'll get a little bit more in. And like I say, I was happy as Larry with a thousand pounds. Happy as Larry. <laughs> Give him a big hug. I was like, you know, chuffed a bit with this kind of, this fund we had. And, I, you know, I was all happy with that. I was content with that. So Matt sent this kind of little post out, put a little post on his thing, and Matt's a writer, you know, foremost, you know what I mean? And he wrote this post, and I thought, wow, you know, I wish I could bloody write like that. And he just kind of laid it bare and told, you know, the truth truth of the matter, and there's the link to, you know, back to my shop. Well, I don't know, <laughs> Matt must be gifted with the kind of Midas touch for getting, like, promotion out, and, or just getting the name out. Because then he just put like a little kind of, I think it was a little like tweet, you know, like a, a Twitter message on there. Then it got picked up by a writer called Holly Black, who has about 9,000 Twitter followers. And I think Holly Black, if I've kind of, I've looked into it, and I think she wrote the kind of Spiderwick Chronicles, you know, that film that came out. Well, I've watched the film, and I enjoyed the film. She wrote that. And then someone else picked it up called Poppy Z Bright. And Poppy Z. Bright was you know, a writer of a few years ago, and I think she more tends to a garden now, following her Twitter blogs and Twitter posts and things like that. Poppy, and I think she's maybe around about 5,000 followers as well on Twitter. And then didn't John Scalzi go and give a little tweet there? And he's got about 9,000 followers. You know what I mean? So that was amazing. You could see, as soon as someone mentioned it on Twitter... You could, I could physically get the emails in, do you know, because I wouldn't get any major emails from most people over kind of the Christmas period, you know, that, that week in between. 
everyone's kind of just doing their own thing and Starship Sova kind of in a little weird went into a bit of a hibernation like the working part of it you know I wasn't emailing people I was just having a kind of a relaxing I'll eat that mother from the fridge you know what I mean give me that pie and I was just like nothing was happening but then you you know because you'd see these you know these kind of emails I'd get an email if someone left a donation then I was kind of crank in do you know what I mean I was thinking oh you know what I mean you get like three or four in an hour then you'd get like eight in an hour then I was getting like 15 20 in an hour then it was it was ridiculous and this didn't stop do you know what I mean this was and I'm thinking eh what's going on here so you get about 30 in an hour and some of them you know 50 quids 100 pounds and this was kind of for two or three days constant you know even through the night and I'm like where's this coming from and then, you know, you kind of follow your Twitter things. He had didn't Neil Gaiman mention just a little, like, retweet. That's all he did. You know, like, he retweeted, like, Holly Black's message, and he, he retweeted, I think. I, no, he did it once, but bear in mind, Neil Gaiman's got about one and a, one and a half million Twitter followers, and, God, they just came in. And then, you know, it was kind of, not just easing off, but, you know what I mean, you'd only get about maybe 15, 20 uh, about an hour, do you know what I mean? But they were still coming in. Then didn't IO9 mention it? And there was a big article written on IO9. And again, constant. That came in all the time, right up. And it was, it, it was kind of happening right up. Well, it even happened on New Year's Eve. I was still, you know, like right at midnight, I was still getting these kind of emails. And I got a, like an email off Josh saying, it's time to close it, Tony. And I couldn't really close it at that time because they were flooding in. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, most people, just two ninety nine. do you know what I mean? But that's just an amazing, who can be, you know, bothered to kind of come onto my site and, you know, do that for two ninety nine. I just thank you so much. So I said, Josh, just leave it for 20, 24, 48 hours. We'll just see how it goes. I said, there's this little kind of period where they're still coming in and... I don't want to kind of stop it. Do you know what I mean? So eventually, after the kind of the New Year day, you know, I think it was about two days. No, it must have been about two days afterwards. I said, Josh, right, that's it. You know, there's no more kind of coming in. I'll ask Josh if you could just, the link, wherever all this link's going to, is coming to my site. I says, can you just redirect it to Spider's site? So if there's anyone who clicks on it in, say, maybe six months' time, you'll get still taken to kind of Spider's site and you can kind of donate there. And... That's it, and it's been like I say, it's been almost viral in its whatever Matt did. You know what I mean? It kind of Matt, thank you so much. It just kind of took off. There's something not right, and the final total is I have it on my iPhone here. Let me have a look. Is three thousand three hundred and fifty pound? You know what I mean? I am gobsmacked to be quite honest. That is an unreal. Like I say, I was so happy with. 800 quid and then the 200 pound. But in this last couple of days, Matt stepped in there, took over the accountancy side, you know what I mean? Just, or took over the kind of the, the dealing with it, you know, and just put these few links out. And like I say, everyone, maybe it was that kind of, you know, the end of the month, the new year, do you know what I mean? It was just something nice to do. And like I say, 3,350 pound is going to Spider. Now I'm going to work that out and see what that is in. Let me have a look here. So in United States dollar dollars, it is five thousand four hundred and twenty-seven. There you go. Wow, man. Wow, wow, wow. So again, what can I say? Thank you, everyone. You know what I mean? It it 
just an amazing thing. Thank you, Larry, for just kind of putting your heart and soul into that story. You know, I, there's been some great comments about that that work. Larry, thank you so much for doing that. Do you know what I mean? You can kind of go to work on Monday morning and just think, you know, I did something good there. We all did. Do you know what I mean? We, we did something fantastic here. I'm going to send this over now to... I'm just going to drop Spider an email and just tell him where, you know, I'm going to kind of don't put it into his kind of PayPal account. Obviously, PayPal take their you know, cut anyways. I don't know how much that will be. But that's just an amazing figure we've got there to send over to Spider and Jeannie Robinson. And I know they'll be chuffed a bit with it. So honestly, my heart, you know what I mean? Thank you so, so much for everyone who's kind of done participated over this kind of month of December and done this, you know what I mean? I'm so kind of now thinking, you know, we should do this once a year, you know, the month of December, you know, following the book, you know, get a picture off Skeet, get a picture off anyone, you know, like a big writer, that more coverage. It'd just be an amazing thing to do this each year. So, that is the editorial, I see. £3,350 we raised, which is 5427 Australian dollars, I ain't got a clue. <laughs> Canadian dollars where a spider lives, I haven't looked it up. But, Again, thank you so, so much. So, Amy, the first one of this year and the first one of this decade, your little fact articles, please. What have you got? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to talk about an author who is quite well known, one of the giants of British Victorian literature, in fact, but who is very rarely, if ever, discussed in the context of science fiction, despite the fact he wrote a significant work of science fiction. His novels remain well-read, taught in classrooms, adapted into audiobooks, and some even adapted into full dramatic presentations by the BBC, all but one, which is usually out of print, his forgotten novel, his work of science fiction. I'm talking about Anthony Trollope, who was born in 1815 and who died in 1882. If science fiction fans know of Trollope at all, outside of his larger context of British literature, it's probably because one of his biggest fans was Sir Alec Guinness, the original Obi-Wan Kenobi, who never traveled without at least one Anthony Trollope novel with him. So who was this Anthony Trollope character anyway? He was born in London in 1815, and he had a rather rough childhood. Although his family came from high social standing, they didn't have the wealth to back that up, and so he was raised somewhat in genteel poverty. His father was a rather unsuccessful barrister, Eventually, he had to flee to Belgium to avoid being arrested for his excessive debt. Anthony's mother at one point took her youngest children and moved to the United States and tried to set up a bazaar that would sell British goods, and with the failure of that business, essentially lost what was left of the family money. Eventually, his mother turned to writing and actually made money at this, and at one point, the entire family was living solely off of the earnings of Francis Trollope. Young Anthony was sent off to school. He was gawky and large, and he didn't possess 
great social skills, and school was really a nightmare for him. He remembered at the age of twelve dreaming about committing suicide because he was taunted and bullied so badly. Of course, his worst fault was the fact that he came from a poor family, and apparently his schoolmates never let him forget this. Although his experiences were undeniably miserable, they did spark the writer's soul inside of young Anthony, leading him to daydream and to create fictional worlds into which he could escape because his own was so difficult to handle. After school, he pursued a career in the general post office. And eventually, he rose to the top of the bureaucratic hierarchy in that agency. And according to the post office today, he was the one who introduced the bright red mailbox, the pillar box, to the United Kingdom. The post office sent him to Ireland in 1841, where he lived for 18 years, and this is where his literary career really took off. Several of his first novels, in fact, were set in Ireland. He would go on to write forty-seven novels before his death, but he got really major acclaim with his novel *The Warden*, which came out in eighteen fifty-five. That was the first of what would become six novels set in a county that he just made up, this fictional world called Barsetshire. And these six novels together are often called *The Chronicles of Barsetshire*. Of these, 1857's *Barchester Towers* is probably the most widely read. He married, moved back to England, and in fact, in 1867, he left the post office to run as a Liberal candidate for Parliament for the 1868 elections. He lost, but he didn't go back to the post office. He focused from that time forward solely on his writing career. He died in London in 1882. His novels were clear and straightforward, and focused often on domestic stories. These traits didn't endear him to modernists who were looking for avant-garde, experimental writing, but certainly they struck a chord with readers. His reputation also suffered during his life because he was very prolific. This made him suspect to some. And he treated his writing like a business. He worked certain hours of the day, regular hours, at his writing. And while this seems to me, for example, a sign of being very self-disciplined and responsible, to some it seemed that he was less of an artist than a common tradesman. I should point out that the criticisms leveled at Trollope were also. Leveled at some of his contemporaries, for example, Charles Dickens was also very prolific, and he too was criticized for this. But critics who look back on his work, particularly from the 1960s and the 1990s, when there was a great upsurge in critical attention given to Trollope, see some things that are definitely worthy of note. For example, Trollope wrote convincingly with depth and subtlety. Of the thoughts and concerns and positions of women in the Victorian era, and the dilemmas they faced due to the restrictions placed on them by society, the same is true for how he dealt with the tensions and difficulties in relationships of family, particularly between daughters and their fathers. 
He dealt with issues of religion and the clergy, with a particularly deft hand as well. And his view on the commonplace, the domestic, the everyday, continues to capture the imagination of readers and, for that matter, viewers. The BBC has produced four television drama serials based on his novels, as well as several radio adaptations of his works. And recently, his novels have begun to appear as unabridged audiobooks. Trollop societies are active in both the United Kingdom and the United States today. So, at this point, you might be saying, this is all good and well, Sturgis, but what exactly does this have to do with science fiction? Well, I'll tell you. It's quite easy to find Trollope's works, as I've mentioned, on television, in print, in audiobook form, all but one, one that seems to be pretty much forgotten. It's a novel that was published in the year that Trollope died, 1882, and it's called The Fixed Period. If you find a copy of it, hold on to it, because it is not reprinted often. The novel is set roughly a century in Trollope's future, that is, in the late 20th century. In that time, a small island just off of New Zealand has gained its independence from Great Britain and named itself Britannula. Roughly three decades before the beginning of the action, in the fixed period. A group of young men went to the island, settled it, and created a new government there. In the intervening 30 years, Britannula has done very well for itself. It's, it's really thrived. And its citizens are very pleased with the governmental system that they have enacted, which includes a president and an assembly, which is a single-house legislative body. Well, there's nothing too unusual in that sort of organization. But there is one way in which the citizens of Britannula have created a new innovation. And that is, by law, citizens who turn 67 are taken to a place called the Necropolis. They stay in this place for a year, pretty much living the good life, being taken care of, having a carefree and worry-free existence. But, I bet you see what's coming, after that year, they are put to death. That's right, long before Logan's Run, you have the Society of Compulsory Euthanasia. Seeing that this government was put together by a group of young people, they really didn't have to deal with the consequences of this rule for quite some time. But the book begins at the point when the oldest citizen in Britannula has lived out his fixed period. Now, the whole idea of the fixed period and the forced euthanasia really sprung from the brain of the man who is now president of Britannula, President Neverbend. Great name, isn't it? The tough part is he's really good friends with Gabriel Crasweller, who is the old guy in question. Even though the law tells him it's his civic duty, Crasweller just doesn't want to die. Some of the other early founders of Britannula really rally to him. They are also, of course, characters who are staring down the age of 67 as it rushes toward them. And they say, you know, maybe we ought to rethink this whole law. But the kicker is that 
The assembly is mostly composed of young people, and they think that the idea of forced euthanasia makes a lot of sense. So they're not very sympathetic. Things are looking pretty bad for Crasweller when, just as he's getting ready to be taken off to the necropolis, a British gunship arrives and it deposes Neverbend and reestablishes direct British control over Britannula. Britannula's laws, including the fixed period, are dissolved along with Britannula's independence. Is this a happy ending? Well, I'm sure Crasweller thinks so because he doesn't have to go die. But the price of additional years of life for Britannula's senior citizens, those who created the laws that were to divest them of life to begin with, is in fact the freedom and independence of all of the citizens of Britannula. Because the place once again is going to become just another colony in the empire. It's a very interesting book, dealing with some heavy-hitting issues, both in terms of questions of imperialism, which other early science fiction writers certainly were invested in, particularly H.G. Wells, and questions of dystopia, certainly. The book anticipates works such as Yevgeny Zemyatin's *We*,、um, George Orwell's *1984*, and especially Aldous Huxley's *Brave New World*. In some ways, it also anticipates Harry Harrison's *Make Room, Make Room*, and that story's cinematic adaptation, *Soylent Green*, as well as, of course, its most obvious literary descendant, *Logan's Run* by William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson. In this sense, the fixed period was ahead of its time, and some critics just didn't get it. This was totally unlike any other book that Trollope had written. For that matter, it was unlike most books that were being written. Some critics wondered if it was just a really bad joke. Although in the introduction, Trollope took pains to say, "I mean every word of it." That's a quote. Other critics found it too dark, too ghastly for their taste. But today, in an era in which issues of healthcare for senior citizens and the ethics of euthanasia are subjects that are widely debated in multiple countries, it seems like it's very relevant. It's also a uniquely heartfelt work, and you don't have to go far to find the reason for that. After all, Trollope wrote the book when he himself was sixty-seven. So the next time you run across Masterpiece Theater and find that it's showing an adaptation of one of Trollope's works, or you find one of his novels on Audible.com, just remember there's more to the author than cozy, poignant tales of families and clergy and small towns. Remember that Trollope too is a part of science fiction history. I look forward to talking again with you soon about more history of the genre. Amy, thank you so much. Honestly, you know, do keep them coming. I rely on your fact articles. I rely on everyone. You know, what I mean, this show would crash and burn. So, Amy, thank you so much. Now, I just want to mention before we kind of get into the main fiction that you know, I mentioned Matthew Sanborn Smith. Matt has. Been lucky enough, or skilled enough, to get a story submitted to a new podcast, and it's called Cosmos Infinities. And that story, <laughs> fluff and buttons on the teddy bear range, what a great title! Cosmos Infinities is Paul W. Campbell. 
Paul has written, narrated a, a many stories for Starship Sova. And I would love you all to just kind of go over there to Cosmos Infinities. You know, I'll put a link on the front of the website. Like I say, Paul's just done an amazing work for Starship Sova. And he's narrated Matt's story. And this is a new podcast kicking off, you know what I mean? Let's support it, please. So we come on to the main fiction tonight, which is I City by Paul DeFilippo. Mr. DeFilippo needs really no introduction, but I'll just give a little background. He's been writing those Pegasus articles over at Fantasy and Science Fiction novels. He has Cosmocopia, Creature from the Black Lagoon, A Year in Linear City, Fuzzy Dice, Spondulix, Cyphers. And actually, if you want to, you can go and listen to Paul DeFilippo over on the old Sophonaut show as well. We use a guest over there. I'll put a link on to Paul's site. Narration today comes from Jeff Lane. Jeff Lane grew up in the snowy wastelands of Maine where he spent much of his childhood riding his pet Tonton trying to avoid being hung upside down in an ice cave with his lightsaber just out of reach. When he grew up he vowed he would move to warmer climes. He now lives in New Hampshire with his wife and two daughters. He's currently podcasting his novel The Paper World as a free audiobook at his website jefflaneaudiobooks.com and also available at iTunes. So do look out for Jeff Lane. Like I say, a few more stories coming from Jeff. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present. I City by Paul DeFilippo. I lost a whole neighborhood last night to that bitch Holly Grail. The Floridora Heights. Renamed this morning after its overnight reformation and subsequential quick poll accreditation. Now, the district was officially West Bess, as in West of Bester. I hate those faddish, abbreviated portmanteau names. Where's the dignity? Where's the sense of tradition? Where's the romance? Plus, once Bester Street disappears, as it's bound to do soon, where's that leave your trendy designation? But my tastes were obviously in the minority since 67.9% of the residents of the quantum Floridora Heights had voted to accept Grail's reformation over my established plan, which they had been living in for some time. Still, I shouldn't have been so down. Floridora Heights had lasted 2,063 hours until suffering the diminishment in popularity that had triggered the reformation. The average duration stats for all I-City Senate neighborhood plans was not quite 1,600 hours. So my plan had performed over 20% better than average. That result, along with my 10 extant accreditations, would certainly allow me to maintain my place in the planner rankings, maybe even jump up a notch or two. So, round about noon of the day I lost to Grail after moping around and enjoying my loser's morning sulk, I began to cheer up. I figured I deserved a drink, either as solace for the loss to Grail or affirmation of my genius. So I headed out in search of the desire path. I was living then on Dictionary Hill, a district created by my friend Virgil Parch. A very pleasant plan, although I would have oriented the main entrances of Hastings Park north-south rather than east-west. My condo, an older model, which I had opted to carry over with me during every reformation over the past five years, was currently incorporated into a building dubbed the Rogue Mandala, very conveniently situated right next to a Starbucks. God bless Parch's thoughtful plans. So after exiting the Mandela, I stepped inside the Starbucks to grab a tall garana and a teff cake. No sense imbibing in booze on an empty stomach, especially this early. 
It was such a nice blue sky day outside. The faithful faraway Pico satellite swarm had moderated the August sunlight and the ambient temperature to very comfortable levels that I took my drink and food outside and let the peristolic Senate sidewalk carry me along while I ate. I arbitrarily headed toward the Conqueville district, or at least what had been the Conqueville district last night. I confess I hadn't scanned the Reformation postings for all of iCity yet, checking on my 11 accreditations, now 10, damn it, thanks to Grail. But Conqueville was where the Desire Path, my favorite bar, had resided the last time I had visited a couple days ago. But as I approached the edges of the district, I could see it was unlikely I would find the Desire Path here any longer. Conqueville was now an extensive Tivoli named Little Sleazy, full of wild amusement rides and fast food booths bursting with the noise of screaming kids. I took out my phone and got a map of iCity as of this very moment. I queried for the Desire Path and found it halfway across town in the coal sack. Oh well, I had plenty of time and nothing better to do. So rather than dive underground for a quick subway ride, I continued on the relatively slow sidewalk toward my goal. I used the time to study the stats on my 10 remaining districts. Resident satisfaction was holding steady in six. Cyprian Fields, Bayside, Crowmarsh, East Plum, Borough Groves, and Lower Upper Crust. My figures had taken a hit in two, Tangerang and Bacaski. And the remaining two showed an uptick, Disco Biscuits and Nuala's Back 40. I immediately scheduled an interim charrette for Tangerang and Bacaski. No sense letting things get bad enough to open up these two districts to a competitive reformation. That'd be just what I needed, the loss of two more of my fifes to someone like Grail. In Disco Biscuits and Nuala's Back 40, I initiated proxy polling to try to determine what the residents found so newly appealing about life there. Finished with that, I looked to see if any new postings for competitive reformations elsewhere had come up. I sure didn't want any of my fifes to be the subject of such a contest. But if some other unlucky planner let his district slide, prompting such a referendum, well, that's just how the system worked. I wasn't going to hold back out of pity. Competitive urban planning was not a game for the weak spined, and I needed to pick up a new district to make up for my loss of Floridora Heights. Yes! Bloorvore Estates, currently accredited to Mode O'Day, was up for reformation. I liked Mode, but I couldn't afford any weepy sentimentality. My mind already churning with plans, I set my sights on Bloorvore Estates and vowed not to look back. I was just hoping Mode wouldn't be present at the Desire Path. If I didn't have to see her and commiserate, my life would be a lot easier. I crossed over the district line separating Bowlingwood from the coal sack and within another minute had dismounted the sidewalk to stand at the door of the Desire Path. The interior of the bar had changed since my last visit two days prior, a complete makeover. A gallery of taxidermied animal heads and some human ones filled one whole wall, all utterly realistic fakes, of course, composed of sensate putty. Beneath the glassy-eyed heads, a bunch of my peers sat at a variety of tables. I moved to join them. Hey, look, it's Moses! Moses proposes and the populace disposes! I dropped down into a seat and soon had a drink in hand. After a polite interval of small talk, the expressions of pity for my recent loss came. Some were genuine, some were thinly stretched over glee. I always thought Floridora Heights was one of your best districts, Mose, said Yvonne Lestrange. Yvonne and I had lived together some years ago for almost 5,000 hours and retained genuine feelings for each other. Thanks, I responded. 
I particularly liked how Sparkle Pond reflected the spires of Binloss Church. Christo Rivadavia said, Yes, quite a pleasant sentimental effect. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But really, Moses, whatever were you thinking with that plaza? Which one? The one where the fountain placements created absolutely chaotic traffic flows. That placement was determined by the best shared space models. Nonetheless, Laguna Diamante intervened before our argument could escalate. Hey, boys, that's enough headbutting. We all know that Moses has done plenty of good work. He couldn't help it that the Floridora citizens eventually tired of his plan. We all know how fickle populaces are. A general round of amens arose and glasses were refilled for a toast. To despair! To despair, despair forever! With genuine conviviality restored... The talk naturally returned to the Blorvor competition. Well, I'm out of this one, said Tartan Varton. Unless I get randomly seated, my stats don't put me in the top ten any longer. Hoagie Spreckles put a comradely arm around Varton's shoulders. Don't worry. Just run a few more phantom zones like your last one and you'll get an invitation from one populace or another. After that, you'll be in like Unwin. Everyone began to talk at once, then tossing out hints of how they would approach this competition. And then in walked Mode O'Day herself. If I had been dragging earlier, then Mode was positively flatlining. Her pretty face resembled a bulldog with dyspepsia. She carried a lump of sensate putty with her that she continually needed like a paranoid ship's captain, angry about his missing strawberries. To masked silence, Mode dropped into a seat like a sack of doorknobs. She plopped the putty in the middle of the table and took out her phone. Still no one spoke. She sent the plans for the Blorvor district to the putty, and the shapeless lump instantly snapped into the configuration of that neighborhood, a perfectly detailed miniature we all recognized. Mode studied the tiny sculpture for nearly a full minute. 
No one dared offer a word. Then, with the swipe of a thumbnail across her phone screen, she rendered the putty into the semblance of a human hand with middle finger outthrust and the others bent back. That's what I think of my populace, she said, and we all cheered. So I dove right into the work of rifying my plan for the reformation of the Blorvor district. After so many years as both an amateur and competitive urban planner in iCity, the whole procedure possessed an intimate familiarity. First, of course, came the dissatisfied populace. Registering their accumulated displeasure or simple boredom with their district, the continuously polled voice of the populace eventually triggered a request for reformation. At that point, the top ten urban planners, barring the one who had designed the failed district, along with a handful of randomly seated contestants, were invited to enter their designs. Any district plan arose from a planner's innate creativity, experience, inspiration, and skills, of course. But the charrette process also held importance. Citizens got to weigh in with suggestions and criticisms. At some prearranged point, all the plans were locked down. At that stage, they were instantiated as both Phantom Zone walkthrough models and physical tabletop versions. The Phantom Zone was littered, of course, with thousands of other amateur walkthroughs compiled on a freelance basis. A period of inspection by the populace lasted a week or so. Then came the first and most important vote. The winning plan would govern the overnight reformation of the district. A final pro forma poll on the morning after the reformation, once the populace had a short time to verify the details of the full-scale instantiation, would award final accreditation to the planner. Simple, right? If you think so, you've never been a competitive urban planner. I spent several nerve-stretched weeks subsisting on a diet of Daffy Do's and TVP bars, trying to design the best, most exciting district I had ever designed. A brilliant mix of utilitarianism, excitement, surprise, grandeur, and comfort. What governed me? Well, of course, I wanted to please the populace. But I was working just as hard to please myself. The aesthetics of my plan were actually uppermost in my instinctive choices and refinements and calculations. Urban planning was my art form, I city my medium. I sought advice from a couple of my compatriots whom I trusted and who also weren't involved in this competition. I trusted any of my peers just so far. Virgil and Yvonne saw my roughs and offered suggestions. You really think the tensile palms of the Senstrate will support a pylon that high? You used the same skin last year in Marple Cheshire, remember? Sitting the Jedi Temple within a hundred yards of the Zionist Charismatics? What were you thinking? The long, hard slog to a final plan took all my concentration and energy. But still, I spared a little attention pinging the grapevine and trying to learn what the other contestants were doing. That included Holly Grail, of course. That stinker ranked two spots below me, but still within the top ten. Right this minute, as I struggled to balance green space with mall footage, taverns with schools, she was doing the same. But her security was tight, and no news filtered out about her designs. Not even when I bumped into her at the reformation of Las Ramblas. Back when the announcement that Blorvor was up for reformation appeared, the Las Ramblas remodeling was already in the populist inspection period. The eventual popular vote awarded the honors to Lafferty Fisk, 
In his plan, in tonight, Lafferty was throwing the usual party to witness and celebrate his triumph. The venue was a restaurant named Mixomycota that cantilevered out from the side of Mount Excess. Mount Excess held all of the extra mass of the Sensate substrate not currently in use by any neighborhood. It was, in effect, a solid vertical reservoir which could be drawn down or added to, and thus its elevation and bulk was constantly changing. Tonight, Mount Excess was pretty substantial. Minimalist designs were hip just then, affording us a good panoramic view of I-City and Las Ramblas. The neighborhood lit up all red as a sign of the impeding transformation. The food and drink and music were splendid. I seem to recall a band named Tiny Identities was playing. The company was stimulating, and I was just beginning to relax for the first time in ages. My plan for the competition was almost finalized, with a day or two to spare till the deadline. As midnight approached, a wave of pleasant tension and anticipation enveloped the room. Everyone clustered against the big windows that looked out over the brilliant city. I turned to the person at my elbow to make some inane comment, and there stood Holly Grail. Her black hair was buzzed short. She had six cometary cinder studs in each earlobe, and she wore a cat suit made out of glistening kelp cloth, accessorized with a small animated cape. Her broad, wry, painted mouth was ironically quirked. Well, 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 she said in a voice whose sensuous allure I found distractingly at odds with my professional repugnance for this woman. If it isn't Frederick Law Moses, once the Baron of Floridora Heights. My name sounded so pretentious coming from her lips. I suppose Robert Olmsted might have been a less dramatic alternative to honor my heroes, but when I had chosen my name, I had been much younger and dreamier. Oh, Holly, it's you. I didn't recognize you for a moment without your copy of Urban Planning for Dummies in your hand. Shouldn't you be home trying to master that ancient emulation of SimCity? My jibes had no effect. I have plenty of downtime, Moses. I've just locked in my design for the Blorvor competition. This news unnerved me. Only a very confident or foolish planner wouldn't be making changes right up to the last minute. I tried to dissemble my anxiety with a quip, but then events outside precluded all conversation. The reformation of Blorvor had begun. The entire red-lit district began to dissolve in syrupy, slow-mo fashion, structures flowing downward into the sensate motherboard like a taffy pole. The varied cityscape, the topography of streets and buildings, and all the district's vegetation was losing its stock of unique identities as all constructions were subsumed back into the sensate from which they had once arisen. Of course, all businesses, clubs, cafes, workshops, restaurants, and other establishments had closed down early for the evening prior to the change, and people had retreated to their homes and condos, if they had not left the district entirely. These domestic units were autonomous, permanent nodes that had sealed themselves off, locking their occupants safely away. Those inside would ride out the Reformation without a jolt or qualm, cradled by the intelligent sensate. Many people even slept through the whole process and anyone absent-minded enough to be caught out during the change would be invaginated by the sensate in a life-support vacuole and protected till the Reformation was over. Inconvenient, but hardly dangerous. Now the district was a flat, featureless plain, a hole in I-City dotted with the capsules of domestic units and the occasional person-sized vacuole awaiting the signal to transform. 
Lafferty Fisk proudly transmitted the impulse from his phone. Cascades of information coursed through the Senstrate. I-City, a lattice of pure patterns, just like the time Moto Day had instantiated the old model of Blorvor on the tabletop in Desire Path, so now the new versions of Las Ramblas, to be named Erigen Miles, commenced to be born. Structures composed of pure Senstrate arose amidst a matrix of streets and other urban features, incorporating the autonomous domestic units into themselves where planned. I swore I felt Mount Excess drop by a centimeter or three. The Senstrate material assumed a variety of textures and skins, right down to a very convincing indestructible grass and soil. Water flowed through new conduits into ponds and canals. Normal colored lights came on. Within less than an hour, Erigen Miles stood complete, I-City's newest district. A huge round of applause broke out in the restaurant. Lafferty Fisk stood at the focus of the approbation and envy. Memories of being there myself flooded powerfully through me. When the tumult died down, I looked around, feeling I could be generous, even toward Holly Grail. But she was nowhere to be seen. All the tabletop models and Phantom Zone walkthroughs for the Blorvor Reformation went live a couple of days later. So I saw what Grail had accomplished. Her design was magnificent. There was no denying it. Just the way Alpha Ralpha Boulevard looped around and flowed onto Von Ark's plaza, this was genuine talent at work. Was her design better than mine and all the others? Only the populace could say. And soon they said, yes. Grails was the winner. I moped around for 48 hours in an absolute funk, a malaise that was hardly alleviated by the fact that my plan for Blorvor had garnered the second highest number of votes. Doubt and despair assailed me. Was I losing my touch? Had I plumbed the depths of my art and hit a stony, infertile bottom? Should I abandon my passion? I spent an inordinate amount of time inside the Phantom Zone walkthrough of Grail's winning plan. I kept comparing her accomplishments, her sensibilities to mine, fixated on discovering what had made her entry so appealing to the populace. Was it this particular cornice, this special wall, this juxtaposition of tree and window, the way sunlight would strike that certain gable, or wind funnel down that mournful alley? And by the end of my fevered inspection, I had decided something. The taste of the populace was debased. The residents of Blorvor, soon to become, yuck, Qualquad, had voted incorrectly. My design was indeed the superior one. I realize now how crazy that sounds. The citizenry is always the ultimate arbiter. Without them, we urban planners would have no reason to exist. There can be no imposition of our taste over their veto, no valorizing of a platonic perfection over perceived utility. We all offer the best we have, and they choose among us. But in my anger and jealousy and despair, I lost sight of these verities. I was more than a little insane, and that remains my only excuse for what I did next. I went to see Sandy Verstandig. Sandy was one of the tech gnomes who kept the Senstrate bubbling under and ready for use at top efficiency and reliability. A rough-edged petite woman who favored a strong floral perfume and employed more profanity than any random half-dozen athletes. I say gnome, but of course that designation was just a nickname for her job. 
She didn't live literally underground. There was no need for her to be in physical proximity to the intelligent material that formed the substance of I-City, except for the occasional regular maintenance inspection of various pieces of subterranean hardware she could handle all of her duties via the phone. Duties such as establishing the order of the Reformation queue. I knew Sandy from frequent help she had given me in the past, when I had questions about the sense trait that only a hands-on expert could answer. In our face-to-face conversations, I'd always gotten the sense that she would not be averse to a romantic relationship. I'm ashamed now to describe how easy it was to get Sandy Verstandig into bed how easy it was to secure access her phone while she slept. And finally, how easy it was to substitute my plan for Grails in the Reformation queue and conceal all traces of my crime. Crowding against the windows at Mixomicata once again as the final seconds ticked away until midnight, I almost shivered with anticipation. There was Blorvor down below, all lit in red. Soon it would be rechristened Bushyhead when it assumed the liniments of my visionary design. It was all I could do not to chuckle aloud at the shock Grail was about to receive. Of course, the mix-up would be immediately apparent, the unmistakable substitution of my superior design for her inferior one. But it would not be totally improbable that the second place entry might have been mistakenly inserted ahead of the winner in the queue. Yes, Sandy Verstandig would take some minor blame, but no lasting harm done. And then... In the morning, the populace would see just how wonderful their new neighborhood was and vote to keep it. I'd get the accreditation and be back up to 11. Grail would look like a whiner and a sore loser if she contested the results. As I said, I wasn't thinking too clearly. Various people addressed me in those last few minutes, but I don't recall anything they or I said. And then midnight arrived. The deliquescent demolition of Blorvor occurred perfectly, rendering the district featureless. All the condo nodes and vacuoles awaited reincorporation into the new buildings. Our room held its collective breath for the manifestation of the winning design. And that's when all chaos erupted. The senstrate began to seethe and churn, tossing out irregular whips and tendrils and geysers. Condo nodes bobbed about like sailboats in a typhoon. I could barely imagine the ride the inhabitants were getting, although I knew that automatic interior safety measures, inflatable furniture, airbag walls, and such, would prevent them from being harmed. The watchers were stunned. I saw Grail with her eyes wide and mouth agape. That image alone was sufficient reward, but also my only tangible satisfaction, because what happened next was utterly tragic. My design emerged, but hybridized with grails. Somehow I had botched the queue, overlaying and blending the two plans. I never would have thought such a thing would be possible. But the reality stood before us. The most outer buildings began to self-assemble, mutant structures obeying no aesthetic code, arrayed higgledy-piggledy across the district. A nightmare, a surreal canvas. I backed away from the window. No, no, this wasn't supposed to happen. I have to give Grail credit for the sharpness of hearing and intelligence. She was on me then like a tigress, bearing me to the floor and pummeling me half senseless, while outside our sight the mash-up reformation surged on. We rolled around for what seemed like a bruising eternity until other planners managed to separate us. Restrained by Parch and O'Day, almost growling, Grail confronted me. 
Moses, you don't know what a huge fucking mess you've gotten yourself into. And I certainly didn't. But neither did she. Of course, you know how the new hybrid district of Qualbushy, sometimes also known as Headquad, broke all duration records, approved the morning after by a shocking 97.6% of the populace, not falling to its next reformation for an astonishing 10,139 hours. Mashup designs became the synchronon for all reformations. iCity experienced a renaissance of design fecundity and doubled in acreage. Mount XS was joined by Mount Backup. Partnerships formed, broke up, and reformed among the planners at an astonishing rate, except for one pairing that endured. Grail and Moses. I give Holly top billing because I'd never hear the end of it at home around the dinner table if I didn't. Well, that's it. Thank you very much. Mr. Paul DeFilippo and Jeff Lane, we move on now to oh, Anticipation, the Sofa Nord Awards. Mr. Mark Bowman, are you there, sir? I am, Tony, thanks. How are you? I'm very well. Mark, can I just say again, second time around, thank you so much for doing putting all this together. Do you know what I mean? There's been a kind of lot going on in Starship so far over this kind of month of December with the, the, the kind of Spider Robinson Fund, and you've just kind of been there and still plugging away and crunching them numbers and... We're there today, aren't we? The final time now. We have got the the final ones, the winners. Yes, we have. No, that's no no trouble at all, Tony. It was good to be on board again. Lovely. Can I just book you for next year, two thousand eleven? Certainly. Why not? I'll, I'll just put it in my calendar. Yeah. Thank you very much. So we had Mark. We had. If you give the list of categories, because I've just working off a little email you've sent to us. Because to be quite honest, I haven't been and been looking at you know because mark can go in and see on like a progress what's happening over the month and i've actually missed all that and i've, I've pulled away from that and it's been nice mark just sent us because i've just found out within the hour mark just sent us the kind of winners so for me as well this is quite oh oh that that one you know so mark if you just give what the cat riggers were and then we'll, we'll kind of jump in sure so um in the order they appeared in the in the survey they were the best main fiction best flash and short fiction best poetry or song contributor best narrator best fact article contributor and the new category this year best artwork yes so which one do you think then mark should we we start off with i think we might start with cover art perhaps yes well best cover artwork then i've got my little list here the first one was from march 09 and it was episode 71 that was by skeet then ali came in with episode 97 which was august 09 then we had reflections of memory this was from episode 105 and this was by alexander barishiva and that was part of the writers of the future stories were being running Next up, we had the episode, which was 110. This was by Skeet. This was November 09. Then we had Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 1. That was by Skeet as well. Mark, who won? The winner was the artwork for Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 1 by Skeet. There you go. And I think it had to, to be quite honest. I think that was one of the kind of main pictures of the year. Do you know what I mean? Like, even, like, floating around past Starship Sofa, you know, like, out into the kind of... the the web as well and 
you know what I mean? That when that picture first came, it was just like you know what I mean. And so much has happened since that picture, you know what I mean? So I think it deserves it hands down, to be quite honest. Definitely, definitely. It, it, it means a lot to a lot of people, I think, that cover. So, no, it was good to see it win. Yes. So congratulations, Skeet. Best artwork, Starship Sofa Volume 1. Yeah, well done, Skeet. Right. What's next up then, sir? Uh, next, we'll do the poetry um, or song contributors. And the nominees were Michael Bishop, Neil Gaiman, Fred Heimbauer, Norm Sherman and Laurel Winter. And the winner, Tony? The winner is Mr. Neil Gaiman. There you go, the big, big hitters winning the poetry yes. and song <laughs> contribution. And, I mean, that was a, a great poem, and, you know, it was it was really nice to kind of snag it as well, you know, and I've got to kind of just say a big thank you to Mr. Gaiman there for letting it have us. I actually, mind you, I didn't vote for that one. <laughs> do, you <want> <laughs> I, do you want to know who I voted for? Who did you vote for, Tony? I Tony. voted for Fred. I wanted Fred oh, to win. <laughs> the the drunken robot. Yes. What um just out of like statistics, and don't give us any, you know, Fred was last kind of uh, positioning. <laughs> um <laughs> Where where was was Neil Gaiman way out in front or? Yeah, he was way out in front by about twenty votes. Right. And then the rest were very close, so Right. Oh there you go. Hey, sorry about that, Fred. <laughs> Beat yeah, by next time, mate, keep you say he'll have to, a superstar. He'll, he'll have to give you a few more songs this year. Yes, that would be nice. Well, actually, hey, there's so much coming from Fred as well. You know, there's, there's like a big project out there, and I'm going to kind of mention it next year, next next show. But I've got about it's about a six or a seven minute article, a song article, where he's doing space opera. Opera in the, the kind of sense of opera as well. He's doing an opera. Oh, really? Show. Yes. You've got to listen the Viking to helmets and, and <laughs> teeth breastplate kind of opera. It sounds fantastic, to be quite honest. Yes, he's, he's put something That's together it. from like a short story by Terry Bison or Terry Bison. I think it's Bison, isn't it? And I'm not sure. It just, you know what I mean? Look out for next week for Fred's, this thing that Fred, this project that's been all encompassing for Fred. It's been fantastic. Oh, that sounds like it's going to be good. So, best poetry went to Mr. Neil Gaiman. And you've been after a Neil Gaiman item for quite a while, haven't you? So, I bet oh, that yes, was good to Yes, yes, yes. I'm actually, yeah. I've got a good excuse now to kind of drop him another email just to say thank you, you know, as well for giving like a little tweet on the kind of Spider Robinson thing. So, you hopefully, oh, yes. your, me and, hopefully, me and Neil will be, you know, good buddies soon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll ask him for a story. Yeah, Neil, you you won you won a Sofanaut award. By the way, what else have you got? <laughs> That's more important than anything. What's next then, Mark? Ah, uh, next we have best narrator. Right now, you know this is a kind of a hotly debated category. You know, what I mean, some, there's some fine narrators in there. We had Mike Boris. Now, Mike did. Oh, what was the? It was the Adam Troy Castro story, which I loved, and I got a few. Emails about that one, that's, that's what the first one kind of Mike came in with. That had that kind of horrific rape scene in the middle of the story. Ooh, but yeah. it's still, you know, it, 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 Mike's narration was fantastic there. We have the old, the old horse there, Jim Campanella, just an amazing guy. Larry Santoro was in there, Amy H. Sturgis and Spider Robinson. The and the winner yes. was, uh, it was a tie, actually, between Larry Santoro and Spider Robinson. There you go. That's, that's quite a remarkable thing, you know what I mean? All people, you know, 
Larry and Spider have tied in that kind of narrator. You know, they've both been kind of, or Larry's been helping Spider in this, you know, the Lord Dickens declaration, and he had to come up both winners in best narrator. No, they both do a fine job. And you know, out of that kind of group, it's hard to kind of even pick a winner. Do you know what I mean? I like to see I wanted Fred to win in the kind of the best poetry. I couldn't decide that one. That's a hard one to kind of put your, your money where your mouth is and put your mark on. You know, like Spider Robinson, Amy, an amazing narrator. Larry, just like so rich, with, you know, depth and that. Jim Campanella can just turn his hand to anything and just put out such oh. an amazing narration. And then along comes yeah, the... Mike Boris with just, you know... No, they're all terrific. I really enjoyed um, Jim Campanella's narration for Lester Young and the Jupiter's Moons. Just that the accent and the voice and the characters he brought to it is really, really a treat. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, well done, Larry and Spider Robinson. So, are we going to leave it at a tie or are we going to make them fight it out between them? <laughs> no, I think it's, I think actually, Mark, that's fitting. That's, you know, a kind of Absolutely. Goodness. Okay, so next up we have Best Flash and Short Fiction. Right. And the nominees are Two Dreams on Trains by Elizabeth Bear, Jesus and the Cowboys by Jay Lake, Bob the Dinosaur Goes to Disneyland by Joe R. Lansdale, Then Just a Dream by Lawrence Santoro, and number five, Hard Rain by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Yeah. And the winner was... Well, just before we kind of jump into that, you know, Bob the Dinosaur, that was the one my dad recorded as a narrator. <laughs> I can, I've just got memories of that one because, like, it was only a, about a three or four minutes story, maybe five minutes, but, oh, wow, there were so many F words and that. I can't do this story, man. Get out, get out. <laughs> it came out great after I edited it all down. But the winner is... Then just a dream, Lauren Santuro. So, uh, go on, Larry. Go on. Yes. I was uh, chuffed a bits with that when I seen that one come through. I said, you know, the guy deserves it. The guy's a star in my eyes. And just a really nice, you know, tell you why I'm happy with that. Because Larry kind of gets involved in the community. Do you know what I mean? It's not just, you know, he really kind of makes it his own little patch. And, you know, he says hello to everyone who comes on the forums and that. And, yeah, definitely. And with his with his intros and outros to his stories, that's a really mm-hmm. nice addition as well. Yeah, definitely. Yes, excellent. You know, so Larry, well done, Squire. Yes, congratulations. Okay, next category, perhaps. Um, we have best fact article contributor. Right. Yeah, we go another. This is a, again. I don't know about you, Mark, but this is another kind of one that's like a hotly debated topic. You know, I mean, they're all kind of great little articles, but it's the kind of You've got to pick one of them. That's when it becomes hard. You know, in there, it's like a, it's a difficult kind of category. We've got Jim Campanella's in there. Matthew Sanborn-Smith, with his fiction crawler. We've got Larry Santuru in there, with his progress reports. Amy H. Sturgis, with the history of the genre. And then we had Damien G. Walter, with the sport our zines. And the winner is, Mark? The winner was Jim Campanella, keeping us all up to date with his science news. Jim. Oh. Do you know what I mean? I, I know it oh, kinda, it's a it's a struggle for Jim to kind of get these in every week. You know what I mean? He's got a f- full time job there. At, well, I suppose there's a few. Everyone's got a full time job, but he's just had a little in there, and I kind of know things are, to the crunch when it comes to getting these articles in. But Jim, thank you so much. 
Yes, well done. And it was very close that one as well. It was it was very close all the way. How close then? Tell who was going. Just break the rules and who was next? You want to know? Yes, go on. Uh, uh, have a guess. It was Amy H. Sturgis. And how close was it? Just out of curiosity. It was only it was only two votes. Oh, now yeah, I can't, I can't remember if if Amy got it last year. Or was it Jim last year as well? Was it? I can't remember. Um, yeah, no, I should should I should have had we should have had these kind of you know what I mean, but. I, yeah, definitely. Did Jim win it last year? I don't know. Sure. But anyway, Jim, congratulations. Everyone else, sorry about that. Amy was so close. <laughs> Two points. Yes, very, very close. Okay, so next we have best main fiction. Best main fiction. And you know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of look at the the, um, the line up there. You know, I'm quite proud to be, you know, Starship Sofa. Exhalation by Ted Chang, The Empire of Ice Cream, Jeffrey Ford, Mars, A Traveller's Guide. Ruth Nesfold, Lester Young and the Jupiter Moons Blues, Jupiter Moons by Godzilla, and Child of an Ancient City, Tad Williams. And the winner is... Exhalation by Ted Chiang. There you go. Again, with, Mark, with that, how was it close? Do you know what I mean? Or could I tell you, I put me, I'll tell you where my vote went. My vote went for Lester Young. Ah, uh, yes, the jazz story. Um, yes. I, I don't think that exhalation was always in front i think there was another story that was leading for a long time and then um exhalation came in strong at the end and and got the most votes so yeah it was was another close one right well there we go exhalation best main fiction by ted chang and he won he won last year's didn't he yes he wins he wins everything outside you know (laughs) as well outside in the bigger world you know it's hard to kind of compete when you've got someone he's such a class writer as ted chang do you know what i mean it's it's hard to kind of get in there with anything but you know all of the rest of them were great stories do you know what i mean especially uh, well i liked empire of ice cream that was a great idea that but just the mars traveler's guide and the way Ray narrated it, honestly, I mentioned this on the show, I thought he'd cocked up with his narrations because he's like a, a fantastic narrator. But, yeah. it, you know, it was like all cut off and, cut, and I was thinking, oh, Ray, you've botched this one. But it was the story, you know, and it's good how someone can be clever enough to write like that, you know, and you kind of put it over in words when it's really kind of sounds, you know, you're getting cut off in, in mid-speech and stuff like that. That's a, you know, that's a clever writer that can do that. Yeah, definitely, because it was like a, a story told as a series of mm-hmm. articles, wasn't it? And yes. It told the narrative that way. No, that was a very chilling story. I thought that was, yeah, that left an impression. But didn't win. Exhalation by no. Ted Chung. That's right, yeah. So, okay. We come on to, is, is this right, the Lifetime Achievement Award? Yeah, that's the one. That's what we're calling it. Yes. And, I mean, this is kind of, it's just really the Starship Sofa saying thank you to everybody. Do you know, kind of everyone that's kind of helped out there. Do you know, it's been an amazing time, especially this year. Do you know what I mean? It's been an amazing year. And, you know, this, again, you know, if anyone kind of knows me and knows what I'm kind of like, I'm asking everybody for everything kind of in help-wise. But we've, I kind of had a little chat with Mark you know, and we've kind of picked this. And Mark, what did you think about, you know, before we kind of mention the kind of winner, was this a difficult choice or was it an easy choice to make or? It was, it was really hard. I was thinking, I was still trying to decide on someone just before we, we started recording this. And it was just, you know, there's so many people out there who contribute different things to Starship Sofa that 
that makes it something that means so much to so many people and it's just so hard to pick one person out of out of the bunch so yeah it was a challenge well we've um, we've made our decision and this year the lifetime achievement award goes to D Kneef and D actually I think in kickstarted you know a whole new ball game that's why I kind of we've, we've picked them with just that one email and then just a big help out with getting starship sofa stories together you know and in such a kind of condensed two week period everything else has kind of sprang from that as well you know and so I think you know D winning that lifetime achievement award is you know he's the one any any yes. comments, Mark? No, I, I I think it's well deserved. He um put it all together in such a short amount of time, and just looking at what's come out of it, it's, we've got you know the story from Larry and the um, donations to um, Spider Robinson and his wife. It's just it's just been a huge thing, and I think um, credit goes to Dee for kickstarting it and doing all the work um, putting it together. Yeah. And I also remember where we kind of we had everyone on the the side once. We were talking about kind of Starship Sofa stories, you know. And Dee said it was like a kind of celebration of Starship Sofa, you know, like hitting that. That's what he kind of looked at it like that. But honestly, I know in the kind of a, kind of a raw essence sense, it was putting like an injection of cash into Starship Sofa, which kind of is making it kind of last like a lot longer. You know, it was a great way to kind of raise the funds for Starship Sofa. And like I say, D was kind of modest and saying, "Oh, it was you know, it was a celebration of Starship." But honestly, it's kept Starship Silver going no end, which is just an amazing thing. And you know, he started something the ball rolling with like, you know, we're going to do this annually now. So I'm we're just excited about kind of volume two. You know what I mean? I've getting a couple of stories in there, and it's now things are starting to kind of roll on volume two. So I just think D well deserves this lifetime achievement award. Absolutely. Well done, D. Well done. So, Mark, that's it? Yeah, that is. Till next year. Yes. Well, again, Mark, honestly, thanks for putting all that together. Like I say, it's just, there's a lot of work goes behind the scenes, you know what I mean? And it's just like all that correlation and getting it together, you know, and working it all out and then sorting the links out and everything like that. And uh, <laughs> just thank you so too much for me, to be quite honest. But honestly, no, thank no you problem. again for stepping in. Honestly, I'm... You know, I'm just looking forward to next year to see what kind of stories we'll have and who's in there as well. No, good. No, it's been, once again, good to be on board. Thank you. So, Mark, just as closing entry there, would you just like to read out the list of winners again? Yes, I can do that. We have, for best cover art, we had Starship Sofa Stories Volume 1 by Skeet. Best poetry contributor was Neil Gaiman. Uh, best Flash... Fiction was Then Just a Dream by Lawrence Santoro. Best Fact Article contributor was Jim Campanella with his Science News. Best Main Fiction was Exhalation by Ted Chiang. Uh, Best Narrator was Lawrence Santoro and Spider Robinson. Had a tie there. And last of all, we gave a Lifetime Achievement Award to D for his services to Starship Sofa. There you go. Again, Mark, thank you so much. I'm just wondering, Mark, if you'd just like to close out with me on this first show of 2010, you know, this first show of the de- a new decade. It would be very nice if I would just like to say these words, if you would just like to follow on from me. It is good night from me. And good night from him.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storytelling Silver. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.